Welcome to On the Spiritual Life, the podcast of the Johnson C. Smith University Spiritual Life Center. I am Kendall Mobley, Associate Professor of Religion and Coordinator of the Spiritual Life Center, and I'll be your host. This is our first installment, so let me begin by noting that the mission of the Spiritual Life Center is to create a safe and welcoming context for spiritual growth and interfaith exploration for all members of the university community. To that end, the goal of this podcast series is to engage people of deep knowledge and experience in compelling conversations about religion and its impact on the most important questions of our time. And I'm very pleased to have as my guests for this first conversation, the Reverend Dr. Alex Awad and Mr. Jonathan Kutab. Alex Awad was born in Jerusalem. He holds degrees from Lee University in Tennessee, North Georgia University, and Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. He is a lecturer, activist, evangelist, a charter member of the Bethlehem Bible College Board of Directors, former director of the Shepherd Society, which is the Christian social ministry outreach of Bethlehem Bible College, former pastor of East Jerusalem Baptist Church, and a retired missionary of the General Board of Global Ministries of the United Methodist Church. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. It's good to be here. Jonathan Kutab has had a distinguished career as a human rights attorney. He is the son of a minister who served the Pentecostal Church of God, the Nazarene Church, and the Mennonites. He was born in Bethlehem, where he grew up, and he is a graduate of Messiah College in Pennsylvania and the University of Virginia Law School. He is a member of the Bar Associations in New York, Israel, and Palestine. Mr. Kutab is on the board of Bethlehem Bible College, and he is the chairman of the board of the Holy Land Trust. He founded a number of human rights organizations, including Al-Haq, the Mandela Institute for Palestinian Prisoners, and Nonviolence International. He is also active in many other Christian and civil society organizations in Palestine and internationally. He was the head of the legal committee negotiating the Cairo Agreement of 1994 between Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization, which created the Palestinian Authority, and has been active in peace and justice issues for many years. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you very much. I'm honored and delighted to have both of you as guests on this inaugural conversation on the spiritual life. Alex, the two of you are here because you are speaking tonight on our campus as part of a speaking tour of the United States. What is the purpose of your speaking tour and why now? Yes, um, first of all, we are honored and privileged to be here and uh, thank you for inviting us. Uh, the purpose of our tour of the United States and the reason we are going from college to college, universities, seminary, churches, uh, civic centers to speak, we want to help um, the average American, uh, especially students and young people, to have a balanced understanding of what is going on in the Middle East, and especially to help people in the churches, uh, even evangelical people and uh, uh, God's people in this country, to understand the Bible in a perspective that will lead more to peace and justice. We feel like um, right now um, a lot of evangelical Christians are not promoting peace and justice because of the lack of knowledge of the situation in the Holy Land. So hopefully our presence will help a little bit change this. Jonathan, who are the Palestinian people 
How many Palestinians are there in the world today, and where are they living? Palestinians really are an Arab people who, uh, over many hundreds and even thousands of years, grew up in the historic land of Palestine, the land of Canaan, the Promised Land, between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. Uh, the Palestinian people are Arab uh, people. Most of them are Muslims, but there's a very large uh, Christian minority that is fully an integrated and integral part of the Palestinian people. Uh, during the past century, I would say, this people have been in conflict with the Zionist movement, which wanted to take back their land and give it to Jews everywhere. As a result, about two-thirds of the Palestinian people have been in, in exile. They've been deported, pushed out, and kept out of the land. A, a portion of them managed to remain in what was the state of Israel when it was created in 48. 20% of Israeli citizens today are Arab Palestinians. They constitute about, I would say, close to 2 million people. Another 2 million people are living in the Gaza Strip, and 3 million are living in the West Bank under Israeli military rule. And then there are refugees in other countries, right? Exactly. Two-thirds of the Palestinian people are refugees outside, and they are not allowed to return to their land uh, at all. Like in Syria and in Jordan, in Egypt, and many other countries. So you are both Palestinians, and you both grew up in Christian homes and yes. embraced Christianity. And I think many people in the United States might be surprised to know that there is a Palestinian Christian community. Or if they know that there's a Palestinian Christian community, they don't know very much about it. Alex, you spent your career as a missionary, a pastor, and a Christian educator. Tell me about the Palestinian Christian community and what it's like to be a leader in that community. Yes. Well, the Christian community in the Holy Land is very, very small. It shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that there are Christians in the Holy Land because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, not Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, but actually <laughs> the real Bethlehem in the Holy Land. Um, and uh, so there have been Christians in the Holy Land since the day of Pentecost. Not only Christians, but what we would call Arab or Palestinian Christians in the Holy Land. So my ancestors, my grand grandparents and uh, Dr. Kutab's grand-grandparents, they are all Palestinian Christians that, you know, they could be traced all the way from the day of Pentecost uh, up until today as existing Christians in the Holy Land. And we have been faithful to preserve Christianity from the first century of the Christian faith until today. So yes, we are Palestinian Arab Christians, Palestinians because we were born in Palestine, Arabs because we speak the Arabic language, and Christians because that's what we have been through the centuries. But today, Palestinian Christianity is about 2% of the total population, and regrettably, it's a declining population, and unless this, what we call the Arab-Israeli conflict ends, there is a true danger that Palestinian Christianity may die out. So we are eager for peace for many, many reasons, but one of the reasons is to preserve the Christian presence in the Holy Land. So you're both connected to Bethlehem Bible College, uh, which is an evangelical college. Alex, I believe this is the 40th anniversary year of the founding of the college, is it not? 
Sure, I was there a few months ago to celebrate. So please tell me about the history and the mission of the college and its impact in the Palestinian community. Yeah, I was there and also my colleague Jonathan because both of us were on the charter board of Bethlehem Bible College. But the idea was started by my brother, his name is Bishara. Bishara was a principal of a high school, Christian high school, and he noticed that many of the students were graduating to study the Bible, to become ministers, but they had to go to other countries, to study in other countries. And usually, if they left to other countries, they couldn't go back to Palestine to minister in their church. So Bishara started thinking, why not have a Bible college in Bethlehem so that we can keep our ministers right here in Bethlehem to serve the church in the Holy Land. And of course, he had an idea. He didn't have money, so he <laughs> prayed about the situation, and he gathered a group of people, and he shared with them the need for a Bible college in the Holy Land. And one pastor, he said, here is $20, start your Bible college. <laughs> and actually, he started Bethlehem Bible College with $20. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and today, if you go and see the Bible college in Bethlehem, you will be really surprised. We have uh, four or five buildings, and it's just an amazing. It's, it's the largest Protestant Bible college in the Holy Land, but really it started with a vision, faith, and also $20. But the idea is that we wanted to educate Palestinian people, especially Palestinian Christians, in the Holy Land with biblical education, and then send them forth to their churches, to their communities, to preach the good news of Jesus Christ where the good news started in the Holy Land. So do you have students who are not Christians who are uh, attending the college? Yeah, as a matter of fact, we have several programs. And one program, we have the mass media program, and we allow Christians and Muslims. We also have one program called the tour guide course, mm -hmm. and we allow Christians and Muslims to register for the tour guide course. But usually our theological education, our Christian education, training pastors and ministers, most of the students are Christians. And sometimes we even have exceptions where we have a Muslim person wanting to study Christian theology, mm -hmm. and we welcome them. We don't discriminate against any student. Sure. So I would love to visit your college. You're I, most welcome. I, I would, the next opportunity that I have, I'm going to come and visit you. You will be welcome. I want to turn now to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I think most people in the United States are aware of the conflict, but they may not understand its history. Jonathan, some people may believe it's essentially a religious conflict, but that's not really the case, is it? Not at all. In fact, the Zionist movement, when it started, was largely a secular, in fact, a, an atheistic movement. David Ben-Gurion was famous. He didn't believe in God. He says, I don't believe in God, but I believe he gave us this land. They found some uh, theological basis to be politically convenient, and that continues to be the case today. Uh, a lot of Israelis welcome the support from evangelical Christians, even though they don't share with them any of their beliefs, and in fact, I think that their beliefs are a little bit off the wall, 
but they welcome their political support and the support they give. Basically, the Zionist movement was created as a uh, response to the kind of Christian anti-Semitism in Western Europe. So it was a European phenomenon because uh, Jews felt that they were being discriminated against in the West, that they were not accepted in whatever country they were, that they were not allowed to be fully German, French, English, American, or whatever, that they could only be really genuinely free in a country of their own. And the Zionist movement started at a time when colonialism was not a bad word. So if you just go over to another country and sort of educate the natives and take over and make it into your country, that was perfectly okay. But they didn't realize, of course, that the land was full of people. It was not a land without a people, for some people without a land. And so necessarily, they had to bring in a lot of Jews and they had to push out a lot of non-Jews to make it Jewish. I mean, otherwise, how would it be a Jewish state if the majority of the people in it and the majority of the land in it belong to non-Jews? So from the very beginning, it was almost inevitable that the Zionist movement would run contrary to and be in conflict with the local population, the indigenous population. And that has been the case ever since then. Now, Alex, you've written two books about the conflict. The first, Through the Eyes of the Victims, the story of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And you've written Palestinian Memories, the story of a Palestinian mother and her people, which is your family's story centered on your mother. So the entire history of this conflict is really very personal to you. It's your history. Palestinians refer to May 15th as the Nakba. Can you explain that term and its significance for you and for your family? Yes, the word Nakba means the catastrophe or the disaster. So for us Palestinians, May 15, we call it Al Nakba because it was disastrous. For example, in my family, that same month, May, my father was shot and killed outside the walls of Jerusalem in the neighborhood where we stayed, it's called Musrara. And my mother and my older brothers and sisters, I was two years old, they buried my father, and then we have to run from West Jerusalem to East Jerusalem, and we became refugees. Not only us, but nearly 800,000 Palestinians lost everything they had, their homes, their houses, their land, their fields, their businesses, and they ran away and they became refugees. These refugees were never allowed to go back to their homes. The Israelis closed their new borders, and any man, woman, or child that tried to cross over and go back to his or her home was shot and killed at the border. So the bulk of the refugees stayed in refugee camps until today, and that's why we call it the Nakba or the disaster. We lost about 80% of our country and about more than half of our population became refugees. Jonathan, many people, when they think of the conflict, associate it with violence and terrorism. As a Mennonite, you're committed to nonviolence. What do you think are the sources or causes of violence in the conflict? Well, I would like to think that nonviolence and peace is a Christian teaching. I'd like to report to you that the majority of, uh, the vast majority of uh, Palestinian 
Christians from all denominations understand the teaching of Christ to prohibit killing other human beings. Unlike most uh, Christians in other countries who always find some excuse, a just war theory or the need to defend and to obey the government to to, to justify war and violence. So, uh, yes, there has been a lot of violence. I would say in secular terms, violence was inevitable. If you want to come into a, a fully populated place and take that land away from its indigenous population, uh, then the, the only way you can do that is through violence. Now, I'd like to think the way of Christ is different from the way of the world. And that Christ is not so much interested in political domination and power as he is in liberating us, liberating us into the values of the kingdom of God. And the values of the kingdom of God, you know, can be very, very uh, practical. They can include such concepts as brotherhood, equality, human rights and human dignity, living together as brothers accepting those who are different from us, accepting the stranger, uh, accepting God's love is for all mankind. In fact, the essence of, of uh, Christ's mission was uh, to break out of the territorial, tribal understanding of God. God loves all people, not just the Jewish people. Uh, God cares for the entire world not just for the land of Canaan and Palestine. God's love extends to everyone. Doesn't mean that he doesn't love the Jews, of course he does. But he also loves the Arabs, and he also loves even the Americans. <laughs> he loves everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So what is the nonviolent way out of the conflict, what needs to happen for the conflict to come to an end? Well, a, a lot needs to happen, I think, and a lot is happening. One of the things that need to happen is for us to break out of the old forms of thinking, to start thinking along the lines of the New Testament, not just the Old Testament. This is not a conquest of the land sanctioned by God. This is not a uh, building a worldly kingdom uh, where you lord it over other people. This is a new world and a new reality. And, and in my view, uh, Jesus's teachings open up the road for all humanity to start thinking in new terms, to start thinking. It is not an accident that the principles of human rights, the principles of human liberation, the idea of equality, were at their roots Christian ideals that, that are based on the fact that God is our Father and He created us all, and we're all created in the image of God. That is why we can, uh, even in a sinful world, we can fight for equality for men and women. We can fight against racism and against apartheid and against discrimination. So this is a broken world. There will always be problems. We will always fall short of the glory of God. But certainly the pathway is laid up for us as to how to move to a better society. In one of your earlier comments, you talked about 
the Zionist movement as a secular, even atheistic political movement, a movement that was all about conquest and taking land, and that it was inspired by anti-Semitism, especially in Europe, that led to a new colonialism, right, that was focused on this idea of Jewish nationalism. Correct. So that's a very different thing from the kind of Christian Zionism that is so strongly held among many American evangelicals today. So, Alex, what is Christian Zionism, and how is it related to this Zionist movement that Jonathan was talking about? Yeah, the amazing thing is that the goals are the same, to take over Palestine and give it to the Jewish people. But the secular Zionist comes to it through European colonial strategies. You know, we are smarter than them. We are more powerful than them. We are richer than them. We can go there and we can take it by force and it becomes ours, just like colonizing Africa, Latin America, and everywhere else in the world. However, the Christian Zionist puts a Christian spin on it. It is in the Bible. God says that the land belongs to the Jewish people. God is working to bring back the Jews to the Holy Land in order to prepare for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And at that time, uh, there were a doctrine that was very, very popular. It's still there are roots of it even today. It's called dispensationalism that God is dividing history into seven dispensations and that Jesus Christ will come at the end of the seventh dispensation in order to vindicate the Jewish people, rebuild a temple in preparation for the final coming of Jesus Christ. So dispensationalism gave way to what we call today Christian Zionism. And the Christian Zionism became the political arm of dispensationalism where say where they said if God wants it then we have to work for it. And they start working through governments in Europe and then governments all over the world in order to create this Jewish state in the Holy Land. So Christian Zionism refers to a movement by Christians who believe that the Jewish people today are God's chosen people. And they and they alone are entitled to possess the Holy Land. And that if we bless the Jewish people, God will bless us. However, if we don't bless the Jewish people, the curse of God will be upon us. And so there is a a little bit of selfishness in it. We want the blessing, we don't want the curse, and therefore we support the establishment and the sustenance of a Jewish state in the Holy Land. And that, that reading of scripture is problematic in itself, is it not? Definitely, definitely. And so our job, what we are doing as we go around, It's not only telling Christian Zionists you are wrong, but we are providing what we call a biblical alternative to Christian Zionism. We are asking Christian Zionists to read the New Testament again. Read the words of Jesus, the words of Paul, the words of Peter, the words of the apostles one more time And if they do so, they notice that Jesus and the apostles, they were talking about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is neither territorial nor racial. It engulfs the whole globe and all the races of humanity in that globe. 
and that nobody today is outside this thing we call the chosenness. All of us are chosen in Christ, whether we are Jews or Gentile. Yes, it's, uh, it is interesting how evangelicals in particular have been victims to people who maybe don't share their evangelical faith, but they know that the evangelicals like to hear Bible verses. So they take verses sometimes out of context. Says, See, here it says, it says in the Bible, I will bless those who bless thee and curse those who curse thee. Genesis 12. But they don't tell them that Galatians 3 says the seed of Abraham is used in the singular, which is Christ. So the seed of Abraham doesn't refer to the state of Israel or to Benjamin Netanyahu. It refers to Christ. And it is through Christ that all the nations of the world uh, be blessed. So it takes another evangelical like ourselves to speak to Christian Zionists because if somebody comes to them and say what about international law what about human rights they say we don't care God said it I believe it and that settles it uh, so we have to say no that's not what God says <laughs> we know what God says we can read the Bible as well as you can let's read it together with humility with compassion and see what God really says about situations like the situation of Palestinians, what God really teaches about justice, what God really teaches uh, about caring for your brother, what God really teaches about who are the chosen people today, what is God's blessing uh, upon uh, all mankind. Jonathan, President Donald Trump and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu recently unveiled what they called a peace plan to resolve the conflict. The Palestinian Authority boycotted the entire process, and most Arab states have completely disavowed it. What is their so-called peace plan, and why is it so unacceptable to Palestinians? I've read the peace plan, all 181 pages of it, and it basically is not a peace plan. Basically, it's a declaration by the United States and Israel. This is where we are. This is what we want. You have to accept it. It has some uh, clear features in it that never appeared in any of the previous peace plans. It provides legitimization for everything Israel did so far. It states clearly we don't want international law. We don't want the United Nations or its resolutions. We accept all the uh, settlements that were created today as legal. We accept that all of Jerusalem is exclusively uh, belonging to Israel and to the Jewish people. We don't really care much about Palestinian refugees. Uh, they're not a problem for Israel. We will give Israel everything it wants now. And if the Palestinians behave in four years, maybe then if they fulfill our requirements to Israel's satisfaction, maybe we will give them some economic benefits. When you read the plan itself, it doesn't read like a peace plan. And I know because I was involved with the negotiations before, uh, the negotiations of the Oslo Agreement, even though I have many criticisms of it, at least that had the elements of an agreement between two parties. This has more the elements of a fiat, forcing one party to accept the other party's dictates. 
Now, you've gone on record, Jonathan, stating that you believe the two-state solution is dead, uh, but you still believe peace is possible. Why is the two-state solution dead, and since it is dead, what are the prospects for peace? The two-state solution for our listeners is the idea that came after 1967, when Israel captured, uh, after the Six-Day War, they captured the West Bank and Gaza and the Sinai Peninsula. And the idea was, let's divide the land. Let's go back to the partition resolution enhanced in Israel's favor. Let Israel keep 78% of Palestine and let's create a state for the Arabs in 22% of the land. Even though it seemed unfair to the Palestinians, at least it made sense at that time. What happened, though, is that Israel systematically undermined this by setting up Jewish settlements, not Israeli settlements, Jewish settlements throughout the West Bank, and about 700,000 Jews are living in those communities under separate laws, separate courts, separate health system, even separate roads connecting them to one another, separate social security, separate education, separate police, an effective apartheid system, which made a two-state solution no longer viable. It's not because the Arabs rejected it, it's because Israel undermined it. So once you do that, once you make it totally impossible to have a genuine, independent, sovereign, contiguous Palestinian state, then you are left with a situation where two people are living in the same land, Jews and non-Jews, about half and half, between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, half the people are Jewish, and half the people are Arab. So either you provide genuine equality to them, if you don't want to divide the land between them, then you have to share the land. And sharing the land means one person, one vote, means equality, means no apartheid, no privileges for one group over another. This is actually the, the more just solution, closer, I think, to the vision of the kingdom of heaven than any of the, one, of, of the other uh, solutions that are possible. But of course, the Israelis would not accept that because of their fear of uh, demography. And they fear that as the Palestinian population continues to grow, there will be more Palestinians in what now they think of as the Jewish state than there are Jews. And so this uh, idea of demography scares them from the possibility of the one-state solution. That's why I say Israel really is in a dilemma because most Israeli citizens would like to have the two-state solution, but most Israeli leaders they don't want either a two-state solution or a one-state solution. And that, that really gets uh, the Israelis in a dilemma, and now they don't know how to get out of this dilemma. They thought that uh, with this Trump deal will get them out of the dilemma, but I don't think so. And, of course, this says nothing about resolving the refugee problem. Yeah, yeah, because, they, I mean, already they have a demographic problem without bringing in the refugees. Yeah. Once they bring the refugees in, definitely it will be a bigger problem. I think there is a fallacy that, that if I have 51% of the population, I can ignore everybody else. 
Well, in a genuine democracy, you don't ignore anybody, especially if they are a substantial minority. You can't just say, this is a white country, African Americans have no rights here. You can't say this is a Christian country, and those who don't believe the way I do have no rights here. You must accept the concept of pluralistic societies, where everybody is equal before the law, where the government or the system of government responds to the needs of all the stakeholders and guarantees the rights of the minorities and the individuals within a collective society. This is the American model anyway. From your perspective, what is the takeaway for U.S. citizens, and in particular for Christians in the United States? What do you want us to know about the plight of the Palestinian people and how we can be helpful? You know, in the book of John, chapter 1, it says, come and see. I would like the American Christians to come to the Holy Land, not under the umbrella of the Israelis or an Israeli tour guide, but come independently and see the situation as it is. See the walls that the Israelis have built, see the checkpoints, see the watchtowers, see the refugee camps, see the Jewish settlements on Palestinian land, see the the wall that the Israelis have uh, built, and then open their Bibles and say, what would Jesus say about this? And this is why we created, you know, some kind of a conference in Bethlehem called Christ at the Checkpoint. And the purpose for Christ at the Checkpoint is to get evangelical Christians and other Christians and even secular people to come to Bethlehem and see the situation as it is on the ground, then open the Bible and see what is uh, happening. I believe that most evangelical people are very good Christians, God-fearing people. And if they see the situation as it is, if they learn the truth as it is on the ground and then compare it to the truth in the Bible, I think they'll be much more balanced in their thinking about Israel and in Palestine. And they will become the best advocates for peace and justice for both Israelis and uh, Palestinians. So this is one of my desires, is for American Christians to almost try to erase what they have learned in the last 50, 100 years and start on a new paradigm of learning the situation as it is today. And, And then I want American Christians to understand that the Holy Land does not only belong to Muslims, to Jews, or to Palestinian Christians, but it belongs to all of us. So if we lose the Christian community in the Holy Land, it's a loss for all of Christianity, not just for Palestinian Christians. And I want American Christians to stand in solidarity with their brothers and sisters, the Christians in the Holy Land, and to make sure that they can continue to survive, to be witnesses for Jesus Christ in the land of his birth, death, and resurrection, until he comes back again. So this is my desire for um, evangelical Christians and all other Christians in this country to come and walk with us the walk and try to understand our situation so that they can be enlightened to be peacemakers as Jesus Christ calls us to be. I've been talking with the Reverend Dr. Alex Awad and Mr. Jonathan Kutab 
Palestinian Christians who are on a speaking tour of the United States talking about the prospects for peace in the Holy Land. Thank you both for talking with me. You are most welcome. Thank you. On behalf of the Spiritual Life Center of Johnson C. Smith University, I'm Kendall Mobley. Thank you for listening. That's all for this episode, but I'll be back again soon with another conversation on the spiritual life.